The ten dharma realms are not beyond a single thought. Explained by the Venerable Master Hua in 1972 at Gold Mountain Dhyana Monastery, San Francisco, USA. Verse If anyone wishes to understand all Buddhas of the three periods of time, he should contemplate the nature of the Dharma realm. The Tathagatas are made from the mind alone. Commentary If anyone wishes to understand all people of the three periods of time, he should contemplate the nature of the Dharma realm. The Tathagatas are made from the mind alone. Are you laughing because I read it wrong? If anyone wishes to understand. Suppose there are people who wish to understand how people become people. All people of the three periods of time. Shouldn't it be all Buddhas of the three periods of time? Why did you say all people of the three periods of time? You ask. People are Buddhas. If you call a person a Buddha, that's okay. And if you call the Buddha a person, that's okay too. Why is this? Because a person can become a Buddha. A Buddha is just a person who has realized Buddhahood. If you talk about Buddhas, no one really understands. So we'll talk about people and it will become easier to understand. Who are the people we're discussing? The Buddhas. Am I a Buddha? You ask. You are. Are other people Buddhas? Yes, they are too. You are a Buddha, but an unrealized Buddha. After your realization, you will become a true Buddha. Now you are a false Buddha. False Buddhas can become true Buddhas, and true Buddhas can become false Buddhas. If anyone wishes to understand all Buddhas of the three periods of time, the verse starts with a word, if, to indicate that this is only a hypothetical situation. Don't be attached and think it's real. The Buddhas of the three periods of time are just people who have realized Buddhahood. He should contemplate the nature of the Dharma realm. How can the Dharma realm have a nature? If it had a nature, how could it be called the Dharma realm? Actually, this refers to the nature of the living beings in the Dharma realm. Every living being of the Dharma realm has its own nature. You have your nature, and I have my nature. I don't know what you mean by nature, you say. Well, your temper is bigger than mine, and mine is deeper than yours. Thus, our natures are different. Each living being in the Dharma realm has its own nature. Pigs have the nature of pigs. Horses 
have the nature of horses, men have the nature of men, and women have the nature of women. Each has his or her own nature. Those who like to eat sweet things have a sweet nature. Those who like to eat sour things have a sour nature. Those who like hot, spicy things have a hot nature. Those who like to eat bitter things have a bitter nature, like all of us here. Note In Chinese, the same character means both bitter and ascetic. We cultivate ascetic practices. Cultivation is ascetic practice. Even going to the dining hall to eat is an ascetic practice. When it comes to ascetic practices, none of you should fall behind. You should race toward the front. In the ascetic practice of eating, all of you race toward the front, don't you? If you look into it, you'll find that everything has its own nature. Trees have the nature of trees, flowers have the nature of flowers. Grass has the nature of grass. Each thing has its own nature. So, the nature of the Dharma realm refers to the nature of each living being in the Dharma realm. Do you understand? Previously, you thought that the Dharma realm had a nature, but now you know this is referring to the nature of living beings in the Dharma realm. The Tathagatas are made from the mind alone. The original verse from the Avatamsaka Sutra said If anyone wishes to understand all Buddhas of the three periods of time, he should contemplate the nature of the Dharma realm. Everything is made from the mind alone. I changed the second line to say, all people of the three periods of time. And I also changed the last line to the Tathagatas are made from the mind alone. Buddhas are created from the mind. If your mind cultivates the Buddha Dharma, you will become a Buddha. If your mind likes the Bodhisattvas, you can practice the Bodhisattva way and become a Bodhisattva. If your mind wants to fall into the hells, you are bound to fall. The Dharma Realm of Buddhas Verse Neither great nor small, neither gone nor come, in worlds as many as motes of dust, they shine upon each other, from their lotus thrones. Commentary The first Dharma realm is that of Buddhas. I once gave a lecture in Redwood City, California, in which I explained the word Buddha. Because I'm quite dull and a bit deaf, when I first heard the word Buddha in English, I heard it as Buddha, which means not big. In Chinese, what is not big? The Buddha. 
One professor liked my explanation so much that when I finished my lecture, he put his palms together and said to me, Buddha. Not big means not arrogant. The Buddha is not arrogant or haughty. An arrogant person is someone who is always saying, I, I, I. The Buddha doesn't have an I, an ego. Me, me, me. Everything is me. Everything to the right, left, in front, back, above, below, and throughout the four directions is me. There are too many me's. And so the self becomes big. The Buddha, being selfless, is not big. Then is he little? No. If he were little, he wouldn't be a Buddha. He is neither great nor small, neither gone nor come. The Buddha has come and yet not come, gone and yet not gone. Since the Buddha's Dharma body fills all of space and pervades the Dharma realm, it is neither absent nor present. You may speak of the Buddha as going, but to where does he go? You might say he comes, but from where does he come? Nor does his Dharma body merely pervade one world. The Dharma realm includes as many worlds as there are motes of dust, limitlessly, boundlessly many worlds, all of which are the Buddha's Dharma body. In worlds as many as motes of dust, they shine upon each other from their lotus thrones. The Buddha in this Dharma realm shines his light upon the Buddha of another Dharma realm, and the light of the Buddha in that Dharma realm illumines this Dharma realm. Sitting on lotus thrones, the Buddhas simultaneously move the earth and emit light from their ears, eyes, noses, tongues, and teeth. Not only do their six organs put forth light and move the earth, their every pore emits light and moves the earth. And in every pore, worlds as numerous as motes of dust appear each containing incalculable numbers of Buddhas who emit light in the same way. Yet, all these lights, like those of many lamps, do not contend. One lamp doesn't say to another, You can't give off so much light because my light has nowhere to go. The lights don't clash with one another. They fuse together. In Buddhism, we unite our lights. Just as lights do not conflict with one another, so too should people not clash. We should allow our lights to shine on one another, like the lights interpenetrating in the interstices of the infinitely layered circular net canopy of the great Brahma Heaven King. That's the Dharma realm of Buddhas. The Dharma Realm of Bodhisattvas Verse 
Sentient beings, when enlightened, leap out of the dust. Their six perfections and ten thousand practices at all times are nurtured. Commentary The second Dharma realm is that of Bodhisattvas. Why did I say all people of the three periods of time above? It's because people can cultivate to go to any of the ten Dharma realms. Yet people are not beyond a single thought of the mind. The Sanskrit word bodhisattva is translated as enlightened being and has two meanings. One, one who causes all sentient beings to become enlightened. Two, and enlightened one among all sentient beings. We are included in both meanings. We all have a share of bodhisattvahood because we are all beings. We can become enlightened ones among beings, and we can teach other beings to become enlightened as well. So being a bodhisattva isn't bad. Not only do we have a share of bodhisattvahood, we also have a share of Buddhahood. I don't get it, you say. Dharma Master, you said earlier that Buddhas are just people who have realized Buddhahood. Well, why haven't we become Buddhas? Let's not talk about people becoming Buddhas. Consider a small child who grows up, becomes an adult, and eventually gets old. We are like children within the Buddha Dharma, and the Buddha is an adult. When we grow up, we will become Buddhas. But right now we are still children in Buddhism. As youngsters need milk, we constantly need the nourishment of hearing the Dharma. Listening to the Dharma is an especially good way to make our good roots grow and to bring forth our wisdom. An opportunity to listen to the Dharma is more valuable than any amount of money you could earn. Today, I'm going to make a rule. I hope that from now on, all of you will not take so many holidays and go on so many trips. Take the study of the Buddha Dharma as your trip. Spend your holidays studying the Buddha Dharma. Why do I say this? because it's very dangerous to travel. Every holiday there are many fatalities, and if you travel, you might end up being one of them. We want to change the trends of this country. The people in this country are fond of recreation and travel. Buddhists should not take so many vacations. We can use this time to study the Buddha Dharma, even better, we can chant sutras, recite mantras, and bow to the Buddhas. There is infinite merit and virtue in bowing to the Buddhas. Bowing before the Buddhas can eradicate offenses as numerous as Ganges sands. If you bow to the Buddhas, you can cancel as many offenses as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River. It is also said, Giving a single penny brings limitless blessings. However, I'm certainly not asking for money from you. You should understand that. 
You can make contributions to other temples and earn great blessings that way. We here are so wretched that we don't have the blessings to receive offerings. If we accept too many offerings, we might die. If no one makes offerings, maybe we can live a few days more. Despite the suffering, we still wish to live a little longer. We don't want to die yet. Therefore, if you wish to give money, you can give it to other places. There are plenty of places where you can plant blessings. You don't have to do it at Gold Mountain Monastery, because Gold Mountain Monastery has only wretched people with few blessings. If you seek blessings here, you'll be disappointed. But don't worry, we won't starve. Sentient beings, when enlightened, leap out of the dust. There are six perfections and ten thousand practices. At all times are nurtured. A bodhisattva is a sentient being among sentient beings. He's an enlightened one. Among the enlightened, he's one who understands. Among those who understand, he's a cultivator. Among cultivators, he's one who truly practices. A bodhisattva leaps out of the dust. If he did not have understanding, he wouldn't be able to transcend the defilement. The dust would be so thick that he wouldn't be able to leap out of it. When he becomes enlightened, the dust thins out, and he can leap out of it. After a bodhisattva leaps out of the dust, what does he do? Sleep and eat? Yes, he still sleeps, eats, and wears clothes, but he no longer works like a slave to provide his body with food, clothing, and a place to live. When you get out of the dust, you cease to be concerned with these three problems, and instead you concentrate on cultivating the six perfections: giving, holding precepts, patience, vigor. Concentration and wisdom. I know what the perfection of giving entails. It involves telling others to make offerings to me. Some of you are thinking. Wrong. It is learning to give to other people. As for money, it would be nice to shred it up. We shouldn't want so much of that filthy stuff. Money is an extremely defiling possession, and too much involvement with it is what is meant by dust. If you don't want money, then you will be extremely pure, and will be able to transcend the dust. Some of you have now transcended the dust, because you are holding the precept of not handling money. However. Make sure you don't get contaminated by money again in the future. You should also cultivate the ten thousand practices and nurture them at all times. You cannot say, "I'll cultivate today, but not tomorrow. I'll cultivate this year, but not next year. I'll cultivate this month and take a rest next month. I'll cultivate this life." 
but not next life. To cultivate one moment and sleep the next moment won't work. At all times, you should nurture your cultivation of the six perfections and ten thousand practices. Cultivate them in life after life. If you practice in this way, you will be a bodhisattva. That's not easy, you say. Did you think that being a bodhisattva would be easy? Not only is it not easy to be a bodhisattva, it's not easy to be a shravaka or a pratyeka buddha either. Then what is it easy to be? It is easy to be a ghost, to go to the hells, or to become an animal. If you want things to be easy, you can be those beings. If you want to be a bodhisattva, it won't be easy. You say it's difficult. The word difficult describes what bodhisattvas do. Bodhisattvas must be able to do what others cannot do. They must endure what others find difficult to endure. When people consider a job too difficult, they say, "That's all right. We'll handle it." They are not put off by difficult tasks. If you don't dare to do what is hard, you are not a bodhisattva. Go forth with vigor. That's what a bodhisattva is like. There is no other esoteric or wonderful secret. If you can do the things that other people cannot do, you are a bodhisattva. The Dharma realm of those enlightened to conditions. Verse. The holy sages enlightened to conditions, those high on mountain peaks alone. Springtime's flowers wither in the fall, in a cycle of twelve interconnecting links. Commentary. Why am I asking you all these questions? Those enlightened to conditions, Pratyeka Buddhas don't like questions. They are recluses who don't like to be around other people. Today we are looking into the question of everyone being together. So you should not act like those enlightened to conditions. When there is a Buddha in the world, they are called those enlightened to conditions. When there is no Buddha in the world, they are called solitarily enlightened ones because they are able to become enlightened by themselves. What do they like to do? They like to sleep in solitude on the mountain peaks. The holy sages enlightened to conditions, doze high on mountain peaks alone. Springtime's flowers wither in the fall, in a cycle of twelve interconnecting links. Speaking of those enlightened to conditions. We should also become enlightened to causes and conditions. They cultivate the twelve causes and conditions. We, however, are cultivated by the twelve causes and conditions. The first of the twelve causes and conditions is ignorance. They contemplate ignorance. Where does it come from? Strange. How can there be ignorance?
then they see that ignorance leads to activity. With the manifestation of activity, consciousness appears. Consciousness involves discrimination. Activity is a conditioned dharma, while ignorance is neither conditioned nor unconditioned. It is between the two. Why are discriminations made? Because of conditioned dharmas. The discriminating mind is a result of conditioned dharmas. With the discriminating mind, the trouble starts. Name and form are the trouble. Name brings the trouble of name, and form brings the trouble of form. If I didn't talk about them, there wouldn't be any problem. Just mentioning them is asking for trouble because you're bound to say, How are name and form troublesome? I don't understand. Before I said anything, you didn't have the problem. Once I began talking, the problem of your not understanding arose, and with it came the desire to know. This quest of knowledge results in the use of the six sense faculties. See? The six sense faculties come into being because of the wish to understand. Have you ever heard such an explanation? No one has explained it this way before. When you decide you want to know, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind appear. You think you can gain understanding through them without realizing that the more you want to understand, the more confused you become. And the more confused you are, the less you understand. Since you don't understand, you seek contact. You go around making contact at random, east, west, south, north, above, below, like a fly madly bouncing off the walls. Why does it bounce off the walls? Because it wants to understand. Contact is just bumping up against things, going everywhere bouncing off the walls. You go everywhere hoping to understand, but all that results from this desperate attempt is a lot of bruises. After the determination to understand sets in and encounters occur, there is feeling. Ow! That hurts! Or, ah, I'm so comfortable. Right now I'm not bumping into things and I feel really good. But when you bump against something, you don't feel good at all. You feel happy if no one is telling you that you're not nice. But you get upset when you hear someone criticize you. This is where feeling lies. It cannot be found outside. Once there is feeling, craving and attachment arise. You give rise to craving and attachment for pleasant situations, but you feel aversion for unpleasant environments. Happiness and unhappiness come from craving and aversion, and so every day the trouble grows. The holy sages enlighten to conditions, those high on mountain peaks alone. Springtime's flowers wither in the fall, in a cycle of twelve interconnecting links. The myriad things grow and prosper in the springtime, 
So the Prateka Buddha sages contemplate and realize that everything undergoes the natural process of birth and death. They contemplate the hundreds of flowers blossoming in the springtime and watch the dry leaves fall in the autumn. They contemplate the twelve causes and conditions. Now we come to craving. The reason people feel unsettled is because of craving. Once there is craving, there is also aversion. You grasp at those things that you crave. What is meant by grasping? It means wanting to get a hold of something. Because you have craving, you then want to obtain those objects in order to fulfill your desires. Thus, grasping leads to becoming. Once you have these things for your own, there is further birth, which leads to old age and death. These are the twelve causes and conditions cultivated by those enlightened to conditions. The Dharma Realm of Hearers Verse The Shravaka disciples, both men and women, contemplate and practice the Four Noble Truths, concealing the real and displaying the expedient. Commentary There are hearers, shravakas, of the first fruition, the second fruition, the third fruition, and the fourth fruition. This Dharma realm is further divided into a those approaching the first fruition who have not yet realized the fruition. b. Those who have realized first fruition. c. Those approaching the second fruition. d. Those who have realized the second fruition. e. Those approaching the third fruition. F. Those who have realized the third fruition. G. Those approaching the fourth fruition. And H. Those who have realized the fourth fruition. Hearers are also called arhats. Arhats can fly and transform themselves, and they possess supernatural powers. One should not casually claim that he has attained the fruition, saying, I'm an arhat. That is not allowed. When a sage who has attained the fruition walks, his feet do not touch the ground. Although he appears to be walking on the road, he is actually traveling in the air. His feet do not touch the ground or the dirt. Even if he walks across mud, his shoes remain clean. Dharma Master Du Xun, the first patriarch of the Huayan school, for example, was one whose shoes weren't soiled when he walked over mud. This is the sign of a sage who has attained the fruition. One cannot casually claim to have attained the fruition. Hearers of the first fruition have eliminated view delusions. Those of the second fruition eliminate thought delusions. At the level of the third fruition, they eliminate delusions in number like dust and sand. 
The hearer of the fourth fruition has partially, though not completely, eliminated ignorance. Only one who has completely destroyed ignorance realizes Buddhahood. For even a bodhisattva at the stage of equal enlightenment still has a small amount of ignorance of arising phenomena which keeps him from realizing Buddhahood. What dharmas do sages of the fourth fruition cultivate? Everyone knows the dharmas they cultivate. We've all heard them before. They are suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way to the cessation of suffering. In the beginning, Shakyamuni Buddha went to the deer park to teach those people who were to become the first five bhikshus. This included the venerable Ajnatakandinya and the venerable Ashvajit. These five people were, in fact, relatives of the Buddha. They had followed the Buddha to practice, but some of them couldn't endure the hardship. When Shakyamuni Buddha was cultivating in the Himalayas, he became as thin as a stick because he ate only one sesame seed and one grain of wheat each day. Three of his followers found this unbearable and fled in hunger, and only two remained. Later, on the eighth day of the twelfth lunar month, a heavenly maiden offered some milk to Shakyamuni Buddha, and he accepted it. At that point, the other two followers left as well, not because they couldn't stand the hardship, but because they felt that the Buddha didn't know how to practice. They said, You're supposed to be cultivating ascetic practices, and yet you drank milk. That shows you aren't able to cultivate and endure hardship. Therefore, they left as well. All five of them went to the deer park. After Shakyamuni Buddha became a Buddha, he first spoke the Avatamsaka Sutra, which very few beings were able to understand. He then concealed the true and offered the expedient teaching, and he spoke the Agama Sutras. Whom should I teach? The Buddha wondered. Then he recalled, Previously I had five fellow cultivators who supported my practice. I should teach them first, because in the past I vowed that when I became a Buddha, I would first teach those who had slandered me, killed me, or treated me badly. Who had treated the Buddha the worst? If you've read the Vajra Sutra, you'll know about King Kali. On the causal ground, when Shakyamuni Buddha was cultivating as a patient immortal, King Kali had chopped off the limbs of his body. Why? In that previous life, Shakyamuni Buddha was a skilled cultivator. His body was covered with a thick layer of dust and dirt, and he never went down the mountain. He remained there cultivating ascetic practices. One day, King Kali took his concubines, his wives, along on a deer hunt. The women accompanied him into the mountains, but had no interest in hunting with the king. They wanted to have fun on their own. While strolling around in the mountains, they came upon a strange creature. They weren't quite sure what it was. Its eyebrows were three inches long, and its hair was two feet long. 
Its face seemed to have never been washed, for the dirt caked on it was extremely thick. The dirt on its clothing was at least an inch thick. When these women saw it, they couldn't figure out what it was. They said, It's a monster. Let's get out of here. Then the cultivator said, You don't have to leave. I'm not a monster. It can speak, they gasped. One of the braver ones asked him, What are you doing here? He replied, I'm cultivating. She asked, What do you mean by cultivating? He said, I'm cultivating in order to become a Buddha. Then he taught them the Dharma. The women grew friendlier and expressed their concern. You endure so much difficulty here. What do you eat? He answered, I eat whatever there is, roots and leaves. I don't go out asking for food from people. By that time, the women's fears vanished. One of them reached out to touch his eyebrows, another touched his hands, and yet a third patted his face. They viewed the cultivator as something precious and tried to get closer to him. Meanwhile, King Kali had finished hunting and was looking for his concubines. He found them all gathered around something and tried to see what they were up to. He worked his way slowly toward them, not making a sound, and when he was close enough, he saw them talking with a very strange man. What is more, one was touching his hands, and another was patting his feet. Seeing them acting so friendly, the king immediately grew jealous. The cultivator was talking to his women about cultivation. In a rage, the king bellowed. You have no business cheating my women. What are you cultivating? The cultivator replied, I'm cultivating patience. And what do you mean by patience? I will never become angry at anyone who scolds or beats me. King Kali said, You may have cheated my women into believing you, but I'll never believe you. You say you can be patient? Is that true? The old cultivator said, Of course. All right, I'm going to give you a test. The king then drew his sword and chopped off the old cultivator's hand. He said, I've just chopped off your hand. Do you hate me? The cultivator said, No. You don't hate me? Then you really have some skill. But you must be lying. You just say you don't hate me. Even though in your mind you do, you're lying. I'm a very smart person. You think you can fool me? King Kali continued, All right. Since you claim you are patient and don't hate me, I'm going to chop off your other hand. After chopping off the cultivator's other hand, the king asked, Now do you hate me? The old cultivator said, No. The king then chopped off the cultivator's feet. Having hacked off the cultivator's four limbs, he asked, Do you hate me? No, said the cultivator. Not only do I not hate you, but when I accomplish Buddhahood, I will save you first. How can I convince you that I don't hate you? If I hate you, 
my four limbs will not be restored. And if I don't hate you, my hands and feet will be restored, even though you have completely severed them from my body. If they are restored, that will prove that I don't feel any hatred. If I feel any hatred, that will not occur. Whereupon the old cultivator became whole again. Having witnessed King Kali hack off the cultivator's hands and feet in such a cruel manner, the Dharma-protecting spirits manifested their great supernatural power and pelted the king with a shower of hailstones. Realizing the severity of his offense and seeing the cultivator's great spiritual powers, King Kali knelt before the cultivator seeking forgiveness. The cultivator said, If I don't realize Buddhahood, there is nothing to be said. But if one day I do, I will save you first. That is why the Buddha first went to the deer park to teach Ajnata Kandinya, who had been King Kali in a former life. Because of his past vow, the Buddha first wanted to save the person who had treated him the worst. After hearing this story, we should all vow that after becoming Buddhas, we will first save those who treated us the worst. We shouldn't think, You've been so mean to me, I'm going to send you to the hells after I become a Buddha. Don't make that kind of vow. When the Buddha went to the deer park, he spoke the three turnings of the Dharma wheel of the Four Noble Truths for the five bhikshus. First, he said, This is suffering. It is oppressive. This is the cause of suffering. It beckons. This is the way. It can be cultivated. This is the cessation of suffering. It can be realized. The second time he said, This is suffering. I have completely known it. This is the cause of suffering. I have completely eliminated it. This is the way. I have completely cultivated it. This is the cessation of suffering. I have completely realized it. During the third turning, he said, This is suffering. You should know it. This is the cause of suffering. You should eliminate it. This is the way. You should cultivate it. This is the cessation of suffering. You should realize it. After the Buddha spoke the three turnings of the Four Noble Truths, he said to Ajnata Kandinya, You are troubled by guest dust, transient defilements, and have not obtained liberation. When Ajnata Kandinya heard the words guest dust, he became enlightened and realized the transience of defiling objects. The guest is not the host, and the dust is unclean. My self-nature is the host, and it is clean and pure. Ajnata Kandinya is called one who understands the original limit. He understood the fundamental truth and became the foremost exponent of emptiness.
The Four Noble Truths are infinite and inexhaustible. The Shravaka disciples, both men and women, both women and men can realize the fruition and become hearers or arhats. Dharma Master Kumarajiva's mother, for instance, became a third stage arhat. Hearers contemplate and practice the Four Noble Truths. They cultivate the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way. This involves being aware of suffering, eliminating the cause of suffering, aiming for the cessation of suffering, and cultivating the way. They cultivate the Dharma door of the Four Noble Truths, concealing the real and displaying the expedient. You see them as hearers, but in reality they may be great bodhisattvas of the provisional teaching who appear expediently as such. This is called concealing the real. They conceal their real merit and virtue. Displaying the expedient means they demonstrate skillful means. You should not write off all hearers as small vehicle cultivators and look down on them. They may be great bodhisattvas who have come back to the world. Not all of them are, but some of them are definitely great vehicle bodhisattvas who appear among those of the small vehicle to urge them to turn from the small and go towards the great. This is called concealing the real and displaying the expedient. The Dharma Realm of Gods Verse Beings of the Six Desire and the Brahma Heavens practice the Five Precepts and the Ten Good Deeds. Planting seeds with outflows, they cannot terminate their transmigration. Commentary Beings of the Six Desire and the Brahma Heavens First of all, there are Six Desire Heavens, which are the heavens of the desire realm. There are heavens in the desire realm, the form realm, and the formless realm, in all of the three realms. Our world is located under the first of the six desire heavens of the desire realm, the heaven of the four heavenly kings. This heaven, which is directly above us, is governed by the four heavenly kings. It is located halfway up Mount Sumeru, which means that half of Mount Sumeru is within the human realm, while the other half is above the heaven of the four heavenly kings. The parts of this heaven located on the north, south, east, and west sides of Mount Sumeru are governed by the four heavenly kings, as are the four continents of our world. Purva Vaideha in the east, Jambudvipa in the south, Aparagodaniya in the west, and Uttarakura in the north. If we were to go into detail, we would never finish our discussion of this heaven. The beings in the heaven of the four heavenly kings have a lifespan of 500 years, 
but that's not the same as 500 years in our world. One day and night in that heaven is equal to 50 years on earth. Figure it out. How many years on earth is 500 years in the heaven of the four heavenly kings? The beings in that heaven live for 500 years. One of their days is 50 human years. How many human years in 365 days of their days? If you know math, you can figure it out. The second heaven in the desire realm is the Triestrimsha heaven. Triestrimsha is a Sanskrit word. You don't know what that means? Then let's call it the don't know heaven. The don't know heaven is just the Triestrimsha heaven a Sanskrit word that means 33. Chakra, known as Yintolaya, Indra, in the Sharangama Mantra, resides in the center of these heavens. He is the god revered in Christianity, and in China he is known as the Jade Emperor. The Book of History refers to him as the Supreme Lord and says, Bathe and observe purity in order to worship the Supreme Lord. In ancient China, no one knew about the Buddha. They knew only about the Supreme Lord. In the Shang Dynasty, Emperor Tang used a black bull as an offering to the Supreme Lord and said, I, Li, but a small child, Presume to use this black bull in venturing to make known to the supremely exalted ruling Lord that if I have offenses, they are not the people's, and if the people have offenses, the offenses rest with me. Emperor Tang's name was Lü, and he referred to himself as a small child out of respect for the supreme Lord. He very sincerely offered a black bull and told the Supreme Lord that if he made errors, the citizens should not be blamed, and that if the common folk of his country committed offenses, the responsibility should rest with the emperor for not having taught them correctly. The ancients blamed themselves in that way, unlike people of today who clearly know that they are in the wrong but say, don't look at me, it's his fault. How can you blame me? And complain, God is unjust. Why does he confer wealth on others and make me so poor? Why does he bestow honor on some and leave me so wretched? They blame heaven and curse mankind looking for faults in others instead of admitting their own wrongs. The ancients acknowledged their own mistakes. In the Triestrimsha heaven, Chakra resides in the middle, with eight heavens surrounding him to the north, south, east, and west, making 33 in all. The third of the desire heavens is the Yama, Suyama heaven. Yama is a Sanskrit word which means time period. In this heaven, the gods are so happy that they sing songs about their bliss day and night. They sing, How happy I am! I'm so happy! They are joyful throughout the six periods of the day and night. 
Hence, the name of this heaven is translated as time period. Every time period is filled with happiness. The fourth of the desire heavens is the Tushita heaven, which translates as happiness and contentment. The beings there are always happy and satisfied. Those who know contentment are always happy. That heaven is called the heaven of contentment. Because the beings there never have a worry or care from morning to night, they don't have any afflictions or worries. The fifth of the desire heavens is the heaven of the transformation of bliss. The beings in this heaven can derive happiness from transformations. In the previous heaven of happiness and contentment, the beings are happy and content regardless of whether there are transformations. They are content even in unhappy situations. In this heaven, the beings bring about happiness through transformations. The sixth of the desire heavens is the heaven of the transformation of others' bliss. The beings of this heaven haven't any bliss of their own, but they can take it from beings in other heavens for their own enjoyment. Many demons live in this heaven along with their retinues. Why do they take the happiness of beings in other heavens? Because they are unreasonable. Common thieves in the world of men are generally gods fallen from the heaven of the transformation of others' bliss. Having fallen, they still have the habit of stealing money from others. The Brahma heavens include the Great Brahma Heaven, the Multitudes of Brahma Heaven, and the Ministers of Brahma Heaven. Beings of the Six Desire Heavens and the Brahma Heavens practice the Five Precepts and the Ten Good Deeds. Because these beings cultivated the Five Precepts and the Ten Good Deeds, they obtained the blessings and rewards of the heavens. However, the cultivation of the Five Precepts and the Ten Good Deeds plants good roots that have outflows. So the verse says, Planting seeds with outflows. It has nothing to do with anyone else at all. Notation. This last line is actually from the verse of the Dharma realm of people. You yourself are responsible. It's not easy to explain the sutras. I don't prepare ahead of time for my lectures. Some of you are thinking that I said the verse wrong, but you don't dare to say it aloud. Strangely enough, though, once you say it in your mind, I receive your telegram. So I'll correct the last line. They cannot terminate their transmigration. Am I right this time? Did you think to yourself that I said it wrong? Disciple. Yes. More than one of you thought that way. The rest of you should also admit to having such thoughts. Be honest. If you aren't honest, you will never attain the way. The Dharma Realm of Asuras Verse Asuras have a violent nature, laden with blessings, lacking power, 
absolutely determined to fight. They bob along in karma's toe. Commentary Ashura is a Sanskrit word that means ugly. Male Asuras are extremely ugly. The females are beautiful. It is the nature of the male Asura to initiate fights. The female Asura is also naturally fond of fighting, but wages covert wars, unlike the overt physical battles of the males, using weapons of the mind such as jealousy, obstructiveness, ignorance, and affliction. Sometimes this realm is included in the three good realms, gods, humans, and asuras. At other times, it is classified as one of the four evil realms, hell beings, hungry ghosts, animals, and asuras. There are asuras in the animal realm, in the human realm, in the heavens, and among the hungry ghosts. Although the asuras are an individual dharma realm by themselves, they appear in the other realms as well. In general, regardless of what realm they are in, they like to pick fights and they have bad tempers. They enjoy bossing others around and like to be supervisors, but they can't stand supervision. They won't be controlled by others. These are the characteristics of asuras, If you haven't noticed the Asuras, I can tell you more about them. Among people, Asuras can be good or bad. The good Asuras include military officials and troops, and bad Asuras are bandits, thieves, robbers, thugs, murderers, and the like. We can see these Asuras in the world of men. There are also Asuras in the heavens. Heavenly Asuras wage battle against the heavenly troops of Chakra. From morning to night, they attempt to overthrow Chakra so that they can seize his jeweled throne and become the heavenly king. But no matter what strategy they use, they are always defeated because they are laden with blessings, lacking power. They have accumulated the blessings that earn them rebirth in the heavens, but they have no authority there. For that reason, they are invariably defeated in their battles with the heavenly troops. Are there Asuras in the animal realm? Yes. Tigers, for instance, are Asuras among the animals. Lions and wolves are also Asuras among the animals. These Asuras bully the other animals. Wolves. Tigers and lions kill other animals for food. They prey on other animals because they have the nature of Asuras. Snakes and eagles are also Asuras. In general, Asuras are utterly unreasonable and have huge tempers. They are constantly blowing their tops. Too much temper! There are also Asuras in the hungry ghost realm and they go around bullying other ghosts. The realm of hungry ghosts has kind ghosts and evil ghosts. Evil ghosts are utterly unreasonable. Ghosts are not reasonable to begin with, but these Asura ghosts are even more unreasonable. And so the verse says, 
Asuras have a violent nature. They have explosive tempers, laden with blessings, lacking power. They have heavenly blessings but lack heavenly authority. They fight for power and advantage but fail to obtain them. Absolutely determined to fight. They love to fight and wage war. The modern world is a world of assurance. Everyone is fighting and struggling, trying to knock each other down. Asuras are so belligerent that they can keep fighting for 100, 200, 300, 500, or even a thousand years. They could fight for a thousand years without getting tired of it. This is the age strong in fighting and also the Dharma ending age. Nevertheless, we don't want it to be the Dharma ending age. We want the proper Dharma to prevail. We should vow that wherever we go, the proper Dharma will prevail. If we do that, every place we go will become a place of genuine Dharma. If everyone fulfilled this vow, the Dharma ending age would become the proper Dharma age. We can turn the situation around. They bob along in karma's toe. Asuras may be born in the heavens, in the human realm, or in the realms of animals and hungry ghosts. Dragged by the force of their karma, they become deluded, create more karma, and undergo the retribution. The force of their karma pulls them to undergo retribution in various realms. Cultivators should take care not to be belligerent and hot-tempered. Then they won't get dragged into the Asura realm. If we study them in detail, we find that there are Asuras in five of the nine Dharma realms of living beings. In the animal realm, there are Asuras among creatures that fly in the air those on the land, and those in the water. Crocodiles are an instance of Asuras in the water. Wild stallions are Asuras among horses. They bring trouble and disturbance to the herd. Most bulls are Asuras too. They butt their two horns against things to show their tough Asura disposition. Bulls are Asuras by nature. Dogs have even more of an Asura nature. So people who own dogs are in close association with Asuras. If you hang around Asuras, you become closer to them. And getting close to them is dangerous. You might just fall into the realm of Asuras. Everyone should pay attention to this and be careful not to run into the realm of Asuras. The Dharma Realm of People Verse The way of men is harmony, with merit and error interspersed. On virtuous deeds you rise, offenses make you fall. It has nothing to do with anyone else at all. Commentary The realm of Asuras is dangerous, but what about the realm of people? There are both good and evil people. The way of men is harmony.
People are harmonious beings who are capable of getting along with one another. However, those who become human beings are neither completely good nor completely bad. Beings who are completely good are reborn in the heavens, while those who are thoroughly bad become animals or hungry ghosts or fall into the hells. People have both merit and offenses. When a person's merit is greater than his offenses, he will be born into a rich and distinguished family. But one with small merit and heavy offenses will be born into a poor family. Between these extremes are a thousand differences and a myriad distinctions. Therefore, the verse says, with merit and error interspersed. They have some merit, and they also have some offenses. They are neither extremely yin nor extremely yang. Beings with a predominance of yin become ghosts. Those who have mostly yang become gods. They don't become humans. Human beings can ascend to the heavens or fall into the hells. If you do good deeds, you ascend. If you commit offenses, you fall. So the verse says, On virtuous deeds you rise, offenses make you fall. It has nothing to do with anyone else at all. Other people cannot tell you to fall into the hells, make you a ghost, or cause you to become an animal. It is entirely up to you. What you create, you must endure. You must suffer the consequences of your own actions. The Dharma Realm of Animals Verse Eager animals feed on greed, never sated by a lot. They take what's black as white and can't distinguish wrong from right. Commentary The seven Dharma realms discussed above are the better ones. If you wish, you can enter them to try them out. Put on a play, but you shouldn't play around with the remaining three Dharma realms. If you try these out, you may not be able to escape. It is said that once you lose your human form, 10,000 eons may pass before that form can be obtained again. It's very dangerous. You shouldn't treat it as mere play acting. One of my disciples compared it to putting on a play, but he doesn't really understand what's going on. There are billions of animals, an infinite variety, flying, crawling, swimming, or walking, in the sky, on land, and in the water. The species of birds and flying animals alone number in the millions, and land animals are not a few either. There are millions of land animals ranging from small rodents through cows, horses, deer, and bears to the mighty elephant. In the water are seals, water buffalo, seahorses, manatees, and a myriad variety of swimming creatures. We could never thoroughly study and understand all these animals. 
even PhDs in the areas of zoology, biology, and related fields who do extensive and continuous research have no way to know all the animal species in the world. If they know a thousand, they don't know eleven hundred. If they know eleven hundred, they don't know twelve hundred. Although someone might claim to know them all, how can he be certain that someone doesn't know more than he does? It's impossible to be sure. We have no way to completely know all the species of animals. Even the number of different kinds of insects would be hard to determine. When examined like that, wouldn't you say that the world is multi-layered and infinite? Infinite and multi-layered. Beings become animals as the result of one thing. Greed. Eager animals feed on greed. For them, no matter what it is, the more the better. A little won't do. They are insatiably greedy. They never get tired of more. Since they are never sated by a lot, they can't tell that black is black. They say, Oh, it's white. They take what's black as white. Because they are greedy for everything, they have no concept of what we consider reasonable even to the point that they are greedy to eat excrement. The more excrement a dog eats, the better it likes it. People wonder how it can eat such filth, but the dog finds it more savory with every mouthful. That's how they are, never sated by a lot. That's an example of taking black as white. They delight in something that is basically unpleasant. Greed can extend even to the desire for more sickness. One sickness is not enough, they want two. They also want to take more medicine. And they can't distinguish right from wrong. Animals are not clear about right and wrong because they lack the ability to reason. How did they get that way? Simply through greed. They become muddled, and ignorance envelops them so that they become totally oblivious to anything rational. Take heed, and don't be greedy. People who have left the home life should not be greedy for money. But some say, the more the better. Such greed puts you in grave danger, and it is easy to become an animal as a result. People who have left the home life can't fall, you may say. If they don't cultivate according to the Buddha's precepts, they will fall even faster. The ancients had a saying, Many of those standing at the gates of the hells are Sanghans and Taoists. All the old Taoists and Buddhist monks who were greedy are waiting at the doors of hell saying, Quick! Send me to the hells. Hurry up and let me come in. Once in, it's a lot of fun inside. They think the hells will provide good entertainment, so they go there. But once they arrive, they realize it is not a game. The Dharma Realm of Hungry Ghosts 
verse. The ghostly crew delights in hate, deluded by effects, confused about cause. Their ignorance and upside downness grow greater each day, deeper each month. Commentary Almost everyone has heard of ghosts, but not everyone believes in them. There are even Buddhist disciples who don't believe there are ghosts. Ghosts are masses of yin energy that have shadow and no form, or form and no shadow. Perhaps you have seen a dark shadow, but when you look closer, it disappears. Or perhaps you've seen what seemed like a person, but which vanished in the blink of an eye. Such phenomena are difficult to understand. Among the ten Dharma realms, we are discussing the Dharma realm of ghosts. There are as many different kinds of ghosts as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River. There are infinitely many kinds of ghosts. Some are affluent and powerful ghosts that reign as kings over the ghost's realm. Some ghosts are poverty-stricken and devoid of authority. It is often the poor ghosts who bother people and go about causing trouble. If you want to know how many kinds of ghosts there are, work hard at cultivation, open the five eyes and six spiritual penetrations, and then you'll know. As to people who say there are no ghosts, I tell them that if there are no ghosts, then there are also no Buddhas, people, or animals because animals are transformed from ghosts, as are people, asuras, and so forth, even to gods, arhats, pratika buddhas, bodhisattvas, and buddhas. All realms come from the realm of ghosts, because the ten dharma realms are not apart from a single thought of the mind, and one thought of the mind creates the ten dharma realms. By conducting yourself as if you were a ghost, you fall into the ghost's realm. Acting as a person does, you come to the human realm. Behaving like an Asura, you join the ranks of Asuras. Assuming the practice of an Arhat, you enter the realm of Arhats. Behaving like one enlightened to conditions, you enter that realm. Doing the deeds of a bodhisattva, you join the retinue of bodhisattvas. Performing the work of a Buddha, you realize Buddhahood. If you commit hellish offenses, you fall into the hells. All of this is brought about by one thought that is right now in your mind. Thus we say that the ten Dharma realms are not beyond a single thought. The ghostly crew delights in hate. Ghosts enjoy exploding in a fiery rage when people are not good to them, and even when treated well, they still get angry. They like nothing better than giving people trouble. They give you trouble whether you are good to them or not. There is an old saying, Lighting a stick of incense calls forth ghosts. People like incense to pay respects to ghosts. 
Before you've paid respect to them, they don't bother you, but once you make their acquaintance, the ghosts become a nuisance, make you sick, or give you some other trouble. Confucius said, Respect the ghosts and spirits, but keep them at a distance. It is wise to pay respects to the ghosts and spirits, but otherwise keep your distance and don't get too close to them. Diluted by effects, confused about cause. They are unclear about results and don't understand their causes. As a result, they can't tell good from bad. Basically, if you plant a good cause, you reap a good fruit. If you plant a bad cause, you reap a bad effect. If you plant melons, you get melons. Plant beans, and you'll get beans. Ghosts don't understand that. They plant eggplant and anticipate eating hot peppers, or plant hot peppers and think they will harvest cucumbers. Since they have no comprehension of principles, they act recklessly and in confusion. Their ignorance and upside downness grow greater each day, deeper each month. They accumulate a lot of karma every day. Their ignorance and upside downness becomes deeper with each passing month. The more karma they create, the deeper their ignorance gets, and the deeper it gets, the more offenses they commit. The Dharma Realm of Hell Beings Verse The hells with anxieties and sufferings are devoid of doors, yet one bores right in. Giving rise to delusion, deeds are done. Retribution is born in due accord. Commentary The hells are miserable places. Anyone who would like to take a vacation in the hells can do so at any time. I can guarantee that you'll get there right away. How? It is said, Depressed and melancholy, you roam through the hells. Happy and smiling, you enjoy eternal youth. Weeping and woe make a small dark room in the hells. Once you become worried, you travel to the hells to take a vacation. If you get worried, you plant a seed for the hells. If you smile, you plant a seed for the heavens. It is said, From ancient times, the divine immortals have had no other practice than merely being happy and not being sad. If you become depressed, you take a trip to the hells. If you smile all the time, you look youthful even if you are old. If you cry, you give yourself a lot of vexation. In general, There is no happiness in the hells. They are full of sufferings and distress. The hells with anxieties and sufferings are devoid of doors, yet one bores right in. Unlike jails built to hold criminals, 
The hells haven't any doors. However, if you are due to go to the hells, when you arrive, it is just as if a door opened, because you will find yourself worming and boring in where there was no entrance. Giving rise to delusion, deeds are done. Why do you go to the hells? Ignorance and afflictions make you stupid and confused, so you create bad karma and don't do good deeds. Retribution is born in due accord. When you create bad karma, you fall into the hells to undergo retribution. There is no end to the cycle once it starts. You receive exact payment for whatever karma you create, and the retribution is never off by even a hair's breadth. Verse All of these ten realms, a single thought, are not apart from your present thought. If you can awaken to that thought, you'll arrive immediately at the other shore. Commentary Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, hearers, and those enlightened to conditions are the four sagely Dharma realms. Gods, human beings, asuras, hell beings, hungry ghosts, and animals are the six common Dharma realms. Together they make up the ten Dharma realms. Where do the ten Dharma realms come from? From the single thought which is right now in your mind. All of these ten realms, a single thought, are not apart from your present thought. If you can awaken to that thought, if you can understand it, you'll arrive immediately at the other shore. The other shore is enlightenment. When you become enlightened, you are no longer confused. When ignorance is smashed, and the Dharma body appears, you arrive at the other shore. This is Mahaprajna Paramita. The As You Wish Demon Woman I've suddenly thought of a story of the As You Wish Woman. She was a ghost that had been shattered by thunder in the Zhou dynasty. She then practiced a kind of magic that protected her from thunder, and when she mastered it, she went around causing trouble. Later, she met me, took refuge with the Triple Jewel, and reformed herself. I could write an entire book on this. You don't have to be afraid of her. Even if she were to come here, she wouldn't harm anyone. Twenty-seven years ago, 1945, on the twelfth day of the second month, I passed through the Joe family station in Manchuria. In the town there was a virtue society whose members met daily for lectures on morality. Since some of the members were my disciples, I would usually stay in the town for a few days when I passed through. This time I met a Chinese astrologer who cast people's horoscopes by looking at the eight characters— two for the year, two for the month, two for the day, and two for the hour, 
of their birth. His horoscopes were very efficacious. He cast my horoscope and said, You should be an official. Why have you left home? Had you wanted to, you could have been a great official. I haven't any idea how to be an official, I said, but I do know how to be a Buddhist monk, and so I have left home. What a pity, said the astrologer, and he looked at my hands. At the very least, he said, you could have been a top-ranking imperial scholar. No, I said, I couldn't even have come in last. He looked at my hands again and said, Oh, this year something very lucky will happen to change your life. What could that be? I asked. After the tenth of the next month, you will be different from now, he replied. Different in what way? Right now all the people within one thousand li, three hundred and fifty miles, believe in you. But after the tenth of next month, everyone within ten thousand li, thirty-five hundred miles, will believe in you. How can that be? I asked. When the time comes, you will know, he said. Two days later, on the fourteenth or fifteenth of the second month, I went to the village of Xiangbaiqi, fourth district, and stayed with my disciple, Xia Xiang, who was over sixty years old and had a family of over thirty people. He was one of the richest landowners in the area and had never believed in Buddhism or anything else. But when he saw me, he believed in me and wanted to take refuge with me. He and his whole family took refuge, and every time I went to the village I'd stay at his house. His family of over thirty was extremely happy to see me this time. I stayed with them for ten days, and about seventy-two people came to take refuge. On the twenty-fifth, I set out in Mr. Shaw's cart for Shuangcheng County, since it was over seventy li, twenty-five miles away. We left at three o'clock in the morning. Although it was early spring, the weather was bitter cold. The driver and the attendant were dressed in fur coats, trousers, and hats. Being very poor, I wore only my usual rag robe made of three layers of thin cotton cloth, trousers made of two layers of cloth, open arhat sandals with no socks, and a hat shaped like folded palms that didn't cover my ears. That was the kind of hat that Master Ji Gong wore. We rode from three in the morning until dawn, reaching the city at seven in the morning. The driver and the attendant thought I would freeze to death since I was so insufficiently dressed. They had stopped to keep warm, but I had remained in the cart from the beginning of the trip. When we arrived at the eastern gate of Shuangcheng County and I got out of the cart, the driver exclaimed, Oh! We thought surely you had frozen to death. I stayed with friends, Dharma-protecting laymen, for more than ten days, and on the ninth of the third month, I returned to Xia Xiang's home in Xiangbaiqi. When I arrived, he told me that one of my recent disciples, 
the daughter of Xia Wenshan, had fallen dangerously ill. She hadn't eaten or drunk water for six or seven days. She did not speak and she looked fiercely angry, as if she wanted to beat people. Then her mother came. Master, she said, my daughter became very ill a few days after taking refuge. She won't talk, eat, or drink, but just glares and sticks her head up on the bed. I don't know what illness she has. I said to her, I can't cure her, so it's useless to ask me. However, my disciple, Han Gangji, has opened his five eyes and knows people's past, present, and future affairs. You should ask him. Han Gangji had also taken refuge on the 24th of the second month. At first, I had refused to take him as a disciple, because before I had left home, the two of us had been good friends and had worked together in the Virtue Society. After I left home and Han Gangji opened his five eyes, he saw that life after life I had always been his teacher, and so he wanted to take refuge with me. I said, We're good friends. How can I take you as a disciple? But if I don't take refuge with you, I shall certainly fall in this life, Hanganji said, and he knelt on the ground and refused to get up. I was just as determined not to accept him, but after perhaps half an hour, I finally said, Those who take refuge with me must follow instructions. You have talent. You know the past, present, and future. Is it possible that it has caused you to become arrogant? Will your pride prevent you from obeying my instructions? Master, he said, I'll certainly obey. If you tell me to throw myself into a cauldron of boiling water, I'll do it. If you tell me to walk on fire, I'll walk. If I get boiled or burned to death, that's all right. You'd better be telling the truth. I said, if I give you instructions, you can't ignore them. No matter what it is, he said, if you tell me to do it, I will do it, and fear no danger whatsoever. And so, Han Ganji was one of the 72 people who took refuge on the 24th. Hearing that one of my disciples was sick, I told Han Ganji, You can diagnose illnesses. Take a look. Hanganji sat in meditation and made a contemplative examination of the illness. Suddenly, his face blanched with terror. Master, he said, we can't handle this one. It's beyond our control. What is it? I asked. The demon who is causing the illness is extremely violent and can assume human form to bring chaos into the world and injury to humankind. What makes the demon so fierce? I asked. The demon was a ghost long ago in the Zhou dynasty, he said. Because it didn't behave properly, a virtuous man with spiritual power shattered it with thunder. But the ghost's spirit did not completely disperse, and it later fused into a powerful demon that could fly and vanish and appear again at will. The demon has refined a magic weapon, he continued. It's an exclusive anti-thunder device, a black hat made out of thin membranes that cover the bodies of newborn children. When she wears the hat, 
that thunder cannot hurt her because thunder has a great aversion to filth. Westerners think that thunder has no one controlling it, and while that may be the case for ordinary thunder, there is a special kind of thunder that is used by gods to punish the goblins, demons, and ghosts who wander throughout the world. In addition to the black hat which protected her from thunder, she had refined two other magic weapons, two round balls. If she put her hat on someone, his soul will fall under her control, and he would become one of her followers. If she hit someone with one of the two round balls, he would immediately die. Han Ganji saw that she was such a fierce demon and said, Master, we can't handle this one. Then what will become of the girl? I asked. She will certainly die. There's no way to help her, he said. I can't allow her to die. If she weren't my disciple, I'd pay no attention. But she took refuge with me on the 24th of last month. When those people had taken refuge, I had taught them to recite the Great Compassion Mantra. I had said to them, each of you should learn to recite the Great Compassion Mantra. It will be of great help to you. If you are in danger and distress and you recite it, Guanyin Bodhisattva will protect you. Since then, many of them had been reciting the Great Compassion Mantra. I said, If she hadn't taken refuge with me, I wouldn't care whether the demon took her life or not but she took refuge with me, so I can't allow the demon to take her life. I've got to do something. You take care of it then, said Hanganji, but I'm not going to. What? I said. When you took refuge, you promised me that you would jump into boiling water or walk on fire if I asked you to. Now, it's not even boiling water or fire. Why have you decided to back out? Hanganji had nothing to say. He thought it over. If you appoint some Dharma-protecting gods to take care of me, don't shilly-shally, I said. If you're going to go, go, but don't vacillate. He said no more and followed me. When we arrived, the girl was lying on the bed with her head on the pillow and her bottom sticking up in the air. It was an embarrassing sight. Her eyes were as wide as those of a cow, and she glared with rage at me. I asked the girl's family, what is the cause of the illness? They told me that seven or eight days earlier, an old woman around age 50 had been sitting beside an isolated grave outside the village. She was wearing a dark blue gown and had braided her hair backwards in two plates that went up her head in back and hung down across her temples. She was wearing yellow trousers and shoes and she was crying mournfully beside the grave. Hearing her cries, the elderly Mrs. Xia went to comfort her, but she continued to cry, Oh, my person! Oh, my person! and kept looking for her person. Finally, she stopped crying and the two of them walked to the village gate. There must have been a spirit guarding the gate because the old woman wouldn't go in. The village was surrounded by a wall and had a gate on each of the four sides. Mrs. Xia went in, but the old woman stayed outside the gate crying. 
At that moment, Xia Zunxiang's horse cart returned to the village. When it reached the gate, the horse saw the woman and shied in fright, for horses can recognize things that people cannot see. As the horse cart went careening through the gate, the old woman followed it. Probably the spirit who guarded the gate had his back turned, and in the confusion, she went sneaking through. The old woman ran to the house of Mr. Yu Jong Bao and continued to look for her person. She looked at Mr. Yi and then ran out of the house, where she was surrounded by thirty or forty curious onlookers who jeered at her. Stupid old woman! What's your last name? I don't have a last name. What's your first name? They asked. I don't know. I'm a corpse, she said. They looked at her as if she were a freak. She continued to walk as if in a stupor until she reached the back wall of Xia Wenshan's estate. She then threw her hat over the eight-foot wall and, in one jump, leapt right over it. No one else could have jumped over the wall, but she made it. The stupid old woman knows kung fu. The crowd screeched, and they ran around and went in through the front gate to watch her. Xia Wenshan's son, Xia Zunquan, who had also taken refuge on the twenty-fourth, ran in the door. "Mama, Mama, the stupid old woman is in our house, but don't be afraid." His mother looked out the window but saw nothing strange. When she turned around, there was the old woman crawling up on the brick bed. She was halfway on the bed and halfway on the floor. What do you want? Shouted the mother, but the old woman made no reply. Seeing the old woman's strange behavior, the mother and her daughter began immediately to recite the mantra, just as they recited the first line of the mantra. Namoha lada no do la ye ye. The old woman slipped to the floor and lay inert, exactly like a corpse. Seeing that, the family was greatly upset. If somebody were to die in their home, it would not be good. They went for the sheriff. When the sheriff saw the old woman lying on the floor as if she were dying, he picked her up with one hand and set her outside. Then he took her to the village courthouse for questioning. Where do you come from? He asked. And why have you come here? Don't ask me, she said. I'm a corpse. I have no name and no home. I just live wherever I am. Frightened by her strange talk and behavior, the sheriff escorted her at pistol point some fifty paces outside the village. But when he returned to the village gate, she was right behind him. He took her seventy paces, and she followed him back again. Finally, he and his three deputies took her a hundred and fifty paces outside the village and said, "Get out or get shot!" And they fired two shots in the air. The old woman fell to the ground in terror, thinking the shots were thunder, which had destroyed her before. This time, she didn't follow them back to the village. When the sheriff and his men returned, they heard that Xia Wenshan's daughter was sick, not speaking. Eating or sleeping, 
but just lying on the bed, staring in rage with her head on the pillow and her bottom sticking up in the air. She didn't eat for seven or eight days. Before we went to Xiao Wenshan's home, I said to Han Ganji, You said that if we tried to handle the matter, we would die. Well, I would rather die than not save one of my disciples. First of all, I must save those who have taken refuge with me. I can't just stand by and let them die. Secondly, I must save the demon. You say that no one can control her, but she has committed so many offenses there is bound to be someone who can subdue her. If she were to be destroyed, it would be a great pity, for she has cultivated diligently for many years. Even if she has enough power to kill me, I'll still save her. Finally, I must save all living beings in the world, and if I don't subdue her now, in the future many people will be harmed by her. For these three reasons, then, I'm going to work. Just then the sheriff happened by and overheard us saying that the old woman was a demon. No wonder, he exclaimed. That's why I was able to pick her up with one hand, just as if there were nothing there at all. It didn't occur to me at the time, but now I realize she's a demon. We then had to find the demon. How did we do that? There are five kinds of dharmas in the Sharangama Mantra. One is the dharma for extinguishing calamities. If you are due to suffer a calamity, you can use this dharma to avert it. There is also the dharma for creating auspiciousness which turns inauspicious events into auspicious ones. With the dharma of summoning and hooking, you can catch goblins, demons, and ghosts no matter how far away they are. There is also the dharma of subduing and conquering, which allows you to subdue any demon that comes. I employed these dharmas from the Sharangama Mantra to summon the as-you-will demon woman. When she entered the room, she had about her an intense and nauseating stench. She came in and tried to put her magic weapon, the black hat, on my head, but couldn't get it on me. Then she took out her round balls and tried to hit me, but they missed my body. Both of her magic weapons had failed. Knowing she was finished, she turned to run, but when she first arrived, I had set up an invisible boundary that would trap her no matter where she tried to go. The gods, dragons, and others of the Eightfold Division of Dharma Protectors watched her from the left, right, front, rear, above, and below. Seeing that she couldn't get away, she knelt and wept. I then spoke the Dharma for her. I explained the Four Noble Truths the twelve causes and conditions, and the six perfections. She immediately understood, resolved to realize Bodhi, and asked to take refuge with the Triple Jewel. I accepted her and gave her the name, Vajra, as you will maiden. She followed me around to save people, but her basic makeup was that of a demon, and no matter where she went, she carried her overwhelming stench. Seeing that it wouldn't do for her to follow me, I sent her to Leifa Mountain in Jiaoha County, Jilin Province, to cultivate in the exquisite cave of the Ten Thousand Saints. I had sent many of my strange and unusual disciples there to cultivate, 
and I have also been there myself. She cultivated vigorously and soon attained spiritual powers and could rescue people. When she rescued them, she didn't like it to be known, since good done hoping others will know is not true good, and evil done in secret for fear that others will know is truly great evil. Thus, the former demon woman became one of the Buddha's followers. Why is the cave called the exquisite cave of 10,000 saints? It's said to be exquisite because it has three entrances, which are mutually visible to each other. It's like a glass cup in that one can see in from the outside and out from the inside. The three entrances to the cave are mutually connected. Inside the cave there is a temple made of bricks and lumber that were carried up the steep mountain crags on the backs of goats. One goat could carry two bricks or a piece of lumber at a time. Off the western entrance of the cave, there is another cave called the Cave of Laozi. Off the eastern entrance is the Dripping Water Cave, which drips enough water to satisfy a troop of 10,000 men and horses. The cave in the back is called the Cave of Patriarch Ji, named after Ji Xiaotang, a native of Manchuria who, in the Ming Dynasty, subdued five ghosts, one of whom was the Blackfish Spirit. The Blackfish Spirit was a Ming Dynasty official in Beijing called Blackie the Great. His last name was Black, but he wasn't a human. He was a fish. Ji Xiaotang knew this and was determined to capture him. He knew that Blackie would pass by the mountain one day, and so he waited for him. When he passed by, Ji Xiaotang released thunder from the palm of his hand and killed him. No one actually knows how many caves there are at Leifa Mountain. Each time you count them, the number is different. 72 today, 73 tomorrow, and 70 the day after that. A man once went there and saw two old men playing chess in a cave. When he coughed, the two long-bearded men said to themselves, How did he get here? And then the stone gate of the entrance closed by itself. The man knelt there seeking the truth from them until he finally died. His grave may still be seen outside the stone door cave. How sincerely he sought for the truth. There are many spirits and immortals up in the mountain. One was a man named Li Ming Fu, who had Master Gong Fu and could run as fast as a monkey. Once I visited the cave at four in the morning and saw him bowing to the Buddha. His hair, which he never washed, was held by a hairpin and matted in a lump that weighed about five or six pounds. His facial features, eyes, nose, and mouth, and his body were very small, but his body was strong. He alone could carry two heavy railroad tracks, where it would take eight ordinary men to carry one. He would tuck one track under each arm. No one knew how old he was or where he was from. He was one of the strange men I met there. These are not stories that I made up. 
they are true events. If you believe them, fine. If you don't believe, that's also fine. It's all up to you.